You are listening to the Canadian Immigration Podcast, Season 2, Episode 2. With Citizenship and Immigration Canada making it increasingly difficult to speak to an officer, there are a few places to turn for information that can be relied upon. The Canadian Immigration Podcast was created to fill this void by offering the latest information on Canadian law, policy, and practice. Please welcome ex-immigration officer and Canadian immigration lawyer, Mark Holthy. As he answers a wide variety of immigration questions and shares practical tips and guidance to help you along your way. Well, hello there, and welcome back to the Canadian Immigration Podcast. I am your host, Mark Holthy, coming to you from the very cold and wintry province of Alberta, Canada. I am delighted to kick off this episode by extending a sincere congratulations uh, to our new Minister of Immigration, Refugees, and Citizenship, the Honorable Ahmed D. Hussein. Um I'm going to talk about him in just a little bit, but, you know, it's exciting when there's changes. New ministers mean there's new direction, new perspective. And uh, without a doubt, I think the perspective that um, that our new minister, Hussein will bring to his uh, portfolio will definitely shape the way Canadian immigration flows going forward. And as all of us immigration lawyers know, and those who practice in the area, um, one thing is constant with immigration, and that is change. Well, before I talk a little bit about our new minister, I want to extend, I guess to some extent, a thank you. Although I've never really had uh, an opportunity to speak directly with Minister McCallum, the reality is he himself transformed the way immigration was uh, under the um, purview of the Conservative government um, considerably. The changes he made in such a short period of time are quite staggering. And uh, I would direct all the listeners back to season one, episode 13 of the Canadian Immigration Podcast, where I talk about what the Liberals have in store for us in 2016. And, uh, you know, when I think about what Minister McCallum has uh, been able to do over the last stretch here, it's quite remarkable. You know, you take a look at the refugees and, and all that they um, they did to put Canada on the map in terms of our welcoming of refugees. Uh, they, they, uh, you know, they're focusing on getting rid of the two-tiered Canadian citizenship. And as Minister McCallum used to say, a Canadian is a Canadian is a Canadian. Um, the family feud is over. Uh, basically, the family class, we knew that processing times were very, very high, and they are actively driving those down. And we know even with the spousal sponsorships now, processing times, their targets are all under one year. So we'll see. And obviously they've expanded the uh, the number of parent and grandparent applications. And even recently here in January of 2017, when I'm doing this podcast, it's amazing to to think of even how the application process for parents and grandparents has transformed. Instead of the rush to see you can get their applications in first, on January 1st or whenever it opened up last year of 2016, this year they created a lottery. And, you know, like it or not, um, you know, this this direction, uh, um, it, 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 it has a fairness to it. You know, everybody is treated equally, um, even though some people may not like that lottery. Uh, we also learned about Minister McCallum that he, that he hates the term economic immigrant. And you can see how that has truly uh, been transforming 
our immigration policy in this country. And uh, this concept that all immigrants contribute regardless of program. And, you know, I think about that a lot. And I think about our new minister, his background. And, and like I said, we'll talk a little bit more about him. But I have no doubt in my mind that he is going to continue down that path of, uh, of really considering all immigrants equal. Um, you know, it's interesting. We look at the express entry system and what Minister McCallum has done to change uh, the heavy, heavy emphasis on labor market impact assessments. So now there's a little bit more equality within that process. And uh, so those changes with express entry, uh, you know, they're looking the the overhauls to live in caregiver program. And, uh, you know, really that's, you know, what, what they've done for international students to some extent as well. So Minister McCallum has left an unbelievable legacy behind him. And maybe unbelievable is a little bit extreme. I tend to over, um, you know, I tend to uh, over exaggerate a little bit, I guess. But he definitely has left his stamp on um, on immigration policy in Canada. And uh, it sure would be awesome to have Minister McCallum come join me now that he's moving on to uh, to other responsibilities. But um, it would be fun to to have him talk about his experience. So that's a, a little shout out to Minister McCallum, or I should say former Minister McCallum, that uh, if he's got time, you give me a call anytime, 403-328-1441, and, uh, and we'll connect and, and do an interview. But uh, I did want to take just a few moments, and I find it, I guess, to some extent, a little bit ironic, the, the topic of this podcast that we're going to be covering today I've invited Carter Hoppy on to talk about the immigrant investor programs or the lack thereof in Canada. But his interview that I did with him is awesome. So I, so hang in there as we do this little bit of a, a transition um, with respect to our Minister of Immigration. As I talk a little bit about that, understand that we're going to get to that interview interview with Carter Hoppy, and it's totally worth it. It's awesome. And uh, I say that about every one of my guests, but Carter is a fantastic storyteller and the practical examples and real life examples that he brings forward to illustrate his points and the context and historical perspective that he brings to this topic um, is just, it's totally worth the listen. So hang in there. Now, I wanted to talk a little bit about the Honorable Ahmed D. Hussein, who is our new uh, immigration minister. And... um, He's a member of parliament for the riding of York Southwestern, and he's a lawyer and social activist. At least that's what it says on the Government of Canada website, and that he has a proven track record of leadership and community empowerment. And uh, what I did was, because I didn't really know a lot about Minister Hoosen, I went and tried to find out some information. And one of the places that I was able to go to was uh, YouTube, and I found a piece that the CBC did um, on minister, uh, now uh, immigration minister Hussein's uh, background and it's entitled from refugee to rookie MP. And, uh, it, it was a little feature on him that talks a little bit about his history, where he's come from. Um, his biography indicates that he was born and raised in Somalia and that uh, he immigrated to Canada in 1993, where he settled in Regent Park and quickly gravitated towards public service. It talks about uh, him in in 2002, co-founding the Regent Park Community Council, and he was able to secure a a $500 million revitalization project for Regent Park, which is a a pretty huge deal. And all of this while ensuring the interests 
of the area's nearly 15,000 residents were protected. Um, he has served as the national president of the Canadian Somali Congress. And um, yeah, his, it says here his results-driven reputation led to an invitation to join the task force for modernizing income security for adults in the Toronto City Summit Alliance. He is fluent in English, Somali, and Swahili. He earned his Bachelor of Arts in History from York University and his law degree from the University of Ottawa. And finally, in 2004, uh, the Toronto Star recognized him as one of 10 individuals in Toronto to have made substantial contributions to his community. So obviously, this is just a short little bio that was put up there quick, and I'm sure we'll learn more about him. I'm really excited to see the direction he's going to be taking uh, immigration. Without a doubt, there is no shortage of change within the immigration policy of Canada. And it will be interesting to see the direction that uh, Minister Hussein takes immigration. So I thought I'd give a, a little shout out to our new minister. Once again, the invitation is out there. If you want to come and join me <laughs> on the podcast, it would be wonderful to get uh, your perspective. But as is the case with pretty much every single officer that I asked to come join me on the podcast, um, they have to politely decline because they, um, they just can't, which is stupid and ridiculous. But Whatever. I, I wish people could actually come on and share the perspective of the government and, and life as an officer, whether it's CBSA or IRCC or even Service Canada. I would love to have people come on and talk about the experience being on the other side of the fence. So we'll leave that. That's just fine. Um, that invitation is a standing invitation, but uh, we'll, we'll move on now. All right. So thank you so much. I'm going to extend a thank you to Carter as he's listening to this episode that we recorded back in middle of December of 2016. Um, This was obviously before uh, all of these recent changes, but Carter was so gracious to come on. He is one of the grandfathers of uh, the practice of immigration law in Canada. In fact, he's been at it for more than 30 years. And uh, he, like a number of other guests that I've had on the podcast has been recognized as a specialist, a certified specialist in Canadian immigration law by the Law Society of Upper Canada. Now, the interesting thing about Carter and what makes him ideally situated to come on and talk about immigrant investor programs is the fact that he is actually located in the Emirate of Dubai in the UAE. And uh, that's where his office has been, I believe, since approximately 1994. And he has a a fascinating story to tell about how he ended up there. But um, he's right in, you know, right in the midst of a a great location. Um, And like I said, ideally situated to talk about immigrant investor programs. And uh, you'll see right away the passion that Carter has for this topic. And, you know, over the last little while, especially with the conservative government, they, they essentially axed the immigrant investor program in 2011. Um, but there are still remnants of, of immigrant and, and, and entrepreneur programs across the country at the provincial level. And Carter's going to talk a little bit about that. But he doesn't also, like he doesn't only limit it to Canada, but he also talks about what's going on in the world. And just the historical perspective that he brings is awesome. Now, he's optimistic that maybe in the future, um, Canada can see the light and bring back the immigrant investor programs. Uh, We'll see with our new immigration minister. We definitely don't want to 
characterize anyone, um, you know, because he is a refugee himself, that somehow he would not be interested in, you know, going uh, through the process of revamping investor programs in Canada. We definitely don't want to do that. But it'll be interesting to see what happens. And obviously, our immigration programs are set for this coming year of 2017. However, we'll see what happens in the future. So without further ado, let's jump to my interview with Mr. Carter Hoppy. Well, today I am very fortunate to have Carter Hoppy, an immigration lawyer, um, practicing out of two locations, I think. You've got two offices, don't you, Carter? Well, my main office is in <clears throat> Dubai, UAE, mm-hmm. although <clears throat> I do have for kind of legal purposes and other purposes, a virtual office in Toronto. Gotcha. I think lots of us have, have those virtual offices scattered around the uh, the globe. So so the UAE, that's your home base and has been for, I understand, many, many years. Uh, yes, I went there in 1994, intending to stay for two years. I'm still there. Okay, so you've opened the door here. So what took you to Dubai in uh, at that time? What, what took you there? Well, up until that time, uh, in the mid-90s, I had always been traveling the world, visiting my clients, living out of a suitcase in a hotel room. <laughs> but I'd never actually, you know, got to experience the world. And... A client of mine uh, who came from a country called the United Arab Emirates, living in the city of Dubai, came to me and I immigrated this woman to Canada as a business immigrant. And I had no idea at the time where Dubai was, let alone the United Arab Emirates. And she said to me, well, there are many people – she was an Indian national. Mm -hmm. She said there are many people from South Asia – Pakistanis and Indians and uh, Sri Lankans and so forth, plus a lot of Arabic people from around the region who are living in the United Arab Emirates. And they need to go to some place because they can't stay in the United Arab Emirates if they're not local citizens. Even if you're born in the United Arab Emirates, you're not a local. You can only be a local if your parents are locals. And so all the people in the United Arab Emirates have to go somewhere else. And Canada is a very attractive immigration destination. So I went over there and uh, at her behest and spoke at a, um, a seminar, which was attended by about three or four hundred people, actually. It was a free seminar. And I talked about Canada Immigration, the program that existed in the mid-90s, for about an hour and a half. And everybody was listening like with <laughs> – Wrapped attention. You could hear a pin drop. And so I mentioned this to a friend of mine when I got back, and he said, you know, you really ought to move there, Carter, because nowhere else on the planet will people listen to you for 90 minutes. (laughs) (laughs) That may be a a CBA um, national conference. Uh, I think think the lawyers are more than willing to listen to what you have to say, especially at the (laughs) evening dinners when you put together these... uh, these uh, wonderful uh, songs <laughs> with with your own creative lyrics. Uh, that is my very first memory of you. I think it was out in Banff doing something for uh, Minister Volpe at the time. Uh, yes. Yes, very fond memories. 
Well, my yeah, I've I've impersonated Justin Bieber. I thought I did a great job, <laughs> and uh, also my appearance as Lady Gaga. Oh was, yes, <laughs> I think a highlight. But <laughs> yeah, so I, but I think I'll stick to my day job. <laughs> well, I can tell you that in some some years you are the reason people go to the conference. So <laughs> <laughs> wonderful. So just, uh, I'm going to give the um, uh, the listeners just a little bit more background on you. So you've been at this gig for over 30 years. How did you get into immigration before you made the decision, hey, I'm going to head out to uh, to Dubai in 94? How did you start? Like what, what got you into this area of the law? Well, I'm a graduate of Osgoode Hall Law School in uh, Toronto. And uh, at the time that I was going through Osgoode, the, they were starting an outreach program called CLASP, Community Legal Aid Services Program, and Osgood actually started a law office in a um, kind of under-advantaged, can we call it that, yeah. area of downtown Toronto in Parkdale. It was called Parkdale Legal Services, and I <clears throat> volunteered for the Criminal Law and Immigration Law Group. And I had no idea what immigration law was about, but I quickly came to understand that most of the criminal clients that came to the office were guilty of something. Often it wasn't guilt. They weren't often guilty of what they'd been charged with, although they certainly could have been. But they were guilty of something. You know, the police don't really get things too, you know, at that level, too wrong. <clears throat> they, you know, we're not talking about murderers, right? And, of course, and, and sophisticated bank fraud. You know, the type of uh, common criminality assault. Uh, you know, larceny of some kind, breaking it or. And so, okay, fine, those folks deserved a legal representation. But then I got to meet immigrants. And immigrants, the immigration clients, were always upwardly mobile, striving, trying to improve themselves and their families. And I just fell in love with immigrants is what it comes down to. Mm. Plus, like most Canadians, I come from an immigration background myself. So my wife's an immigrant or was an immigrant when she came here at age 15. Mm -hmm. um, I'm the grandchild of immigrants. So <laughs> like many Canadians, we have immigration in our blood. Absolutely, we do. You know, I think, Carter, most of the people that I get on this podcast, practitioners, uh, they, they tell the same story that you do. That you, do. you know, the, the reality is immigration law gives us an opportunity to make a difference in people's lives. And yeah. I think that's part of the draw. That's what makes it so rewarding. And in the previous podcast I did with, with Richard, um, he emphasized and highlighted the fact that you don't get into immigration law necessarily to become rich. <laughs> and, if, and if that was the case, well, um, there's probably uh, it, that, that process ebbs and flows. But the reality is this is, you know, you, you get into it because you truly want to help people. And uh, yeah, and you admire, like you said, the the qualities that immigrants have, their desire to, to make, um, you know, the most of the, the opportunity that they have. And it's just fun to be along for the ride. Exactly. Yeah. Very heartwarming. You know, when, when you bring a family to Canada, they, they're very thankful. <laughs> they, and they, you know, I, I still have relationships that date back. 20 yes. Years. Yes. It's very, it's heartwarming and rewarding. Yep. Yeah, I just received an email just this morning for one of the families that I've been acting for who just did their landing down at Coots. 
the wonderful port of entry. And uh, I know that the some of the CBSC officers actually listen to this podcast. So um, Coots can be a little challenging, but it was really nice to see the warm, positive experience they had landing at Coots. So, yeah. <laughs> so, so that's wonderful. So um, in terms of, of, of your background, Carter, I, I know that you've, like I said, you've, you've been at this for quite a while. You're, you're based in, um, in Dubai, and uh, there you're licensed as a, as, a, as a legal consultant in the Emirate of Dubai. And you practice right. under, the, under the firm name, you practice of, of Carter Hoppy Legal Consultants. And you are the only immigration law specialist licensed to practice law in both Ontario and Dubai. And so, um, yeah, that's quite, uh, that's definitely unique for sure. So, yeah, I am. It is kind of, and that's how I got my law license in Dubai. I wrote to the ruler's office in in Dubai. The law society is governed by the ruler himself, the ruler of Dubai, whose name is Sheikh Mohammed. And I said in my submission to become a licensed practitioner there that there were no other Ontario lawyers at that time practicing law in the UAE. There are now several lawyers in the UAE who come from Ontario, but none of them who are doing immigration law Mm -hmm. uh, on a full-time basis anyway. So, yeah. Huh, interesting. Well, that's great. Well, with, with your lead-in, especially with the one client you indicated that, that took you out to, to Dubai those years, those years past, um, that leads us into the topic that I've asked you to, to address and you've, you've uh, been so gracious to, to share insight, insight on, and that is the, the whole concept of entrepreneur and investor immigration. And uh, why don't we just start from there? Like, let's try to get our, our terminology straight here a little bit. What is the difference between an entrepreneur and an investor, you know, and between active and, and passive investment, those, those concepts? Yes, it's a very confusing area in terms of terminology because if you read the newspaper accounts or hear articles, you know, hear people speak, speak about immigration on the radio or on television, they throw around the words investor and entrepreneur uh, indiscriminately, but those are very technical terms, um, and you have to understand the difference between an active investor, if you like, that's a person who is going to actually be a hands-on business person, and I understand you're going to be later interviewing Peter Rakai, who's going to talk to you about the Canadian federal self-employed category, mm-hmm. which is very much a hands-on uh, application category. The people, t- in order to qualify in that co- category, have to convince the federal government that they are going to make a meaningful business contribution in the arts or in, oddly enough, farming. Yes. Uh, or athletics. Mm-hmm. So, so that's an active business uh, category. And the word entrepreneur is often associated with uh, that kind of active business concept. Some of the uh, Canadian provinces, including Quebec, have what they call business immigration or entrepreneur uh, programs where they are attracting or attempting to attract quality individuals who will set up a business and employ people and generate revenue and pay income taxes in that particular province. That's a far different thing than someone who comes 
and just writes a check. And so usually when you use the word investor by itself, you're referring to a passive investment scheme. The federal government used to have an investor category for reasons that we could talk about, but <laughs> it w would take some time. For political reasons, the former government canceled the federal government in <clears throat> investor program back in 2012, although I think it actually died in 2011. And <clears throat> so at the federal level, we don't have an investor program anymore. We do have an investor program, however, at the Quebec, uh, at, with the province of Quebec. The province of Quebec, of course, enjoys a special status within Canada because of the Canada-Quebec Accord, which gives it, unlike all other provinces, absolute control over the selection, well, nearly absolute control, over the selection of immigrants coming into the province of Quebec. And the province of Quebec really likes the concept of an investor who simply writes a check for a large amount of money. And the way the Quebec program is set up, they repay that money without any interest after a number of years. But the it's important to recognize the difference between passive investment on the one hand and active investment because the way you should be treating the applications, the nature of the people coming forward, uh, the perhaps the amount of money that they'll be bringing to Canada can be quite different. So it's important to get the terminology straight. So from now on, in this podcast, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to be talking about passive investment when I use the word investor. Mm -hmm. That's a person who is only bringing the financial capital to the table. These same people may well have other skills and attributes and histories, but in order to qualify, when I use the word investor, they're just writing a check. Hmm. On, on the other hand, if I use the term investor, sorry, I, I fell into the trap myself. <laughs> if, if I use the term entrepreneur or business immigrant, I'm going to be referring to programs that are encouraging hands-on actual business enterprise uh, development in a particular province, because at the federal level, we don't have an entrepreneur program. Hmm. So, so from what you've described here, we, we know now that back in 2011, effectively the investor program was, was, uh, was, was killed at a federal level. Um, yeah. So, so if, if, okay, so the federal government, they, they haven't found that it's something they want to pursue, but what are the benefits then? What, what's the draw to selecting immigrants based on the financial capital contributions for provinces like Quebec um, or all the many other countries in the world that are constantly sending me, you know, emails saying, hey, check out our investor program. You can get, you know, uh, you, can, you can get citizenship by uh, just, you know, throwing some cash. <laughs> what, what is the, you know, what is the, the, the benefits of, of this type of, uh, of, of immigration stream? Right. So it depends on which country we're talking about and what financial circumstances that country finds itself in at a particular point in time, what political uh, circumstances exist in a particular country at a particular point in time. Every country is different. So we have, for example, many, about five or six, Caribbean island nations. Mm, yes. And they are 
by and large, uh, the, the names of these countries are – they're not hidden. Uh, they're public, obviously. St. Kitts and Nevis is uh-huh. one. And Antigua and Barbuda is another. <laughs> Dominica, uh, Grenada, um, and ah, St. Lucia has been added to, the, to that number as well. And, and those countries need cash. That's basically it. And what uh-huh. do they have to sell? They have to sell the only thing that – well, they have many things to sell, tourism, nice villas on beaches and so forth. But one of the things that they can sell is the quality of their nationality. And those Caribbean island nations that I've mentioned, Dominica, Antigua, and St. Kitts are the – also Grenada are the most famous. Uh, They have visitor-exempt status – to be able to get into the United Kingdom and the and the EU, huh. and some of them, Antigua, also have visitor exempt status to visit Canada. Hmm. Now that's a very tricky and precarious uh, advantage because, of course, the country of Antigua cannot force the EU. Uh, or Canada to admit its citizens without a visa. That's a decision made by the receiving country. And a, a, a glaring example is the country is the country of uh, St. Kitts and Nevis. St. Kitts and Nevis, up until December 2014, their citizens enjoyed visitor visa exempt status to be able to enter Canada. When one morning, the then minister, I think it was Chris Alexander, <clears throat> I'm not sure who, which, who was the minister, mm-hmm. so, signed with the stroke of a pen, <clears throat> took away from St. Kitts that visa exempt status. And all of a sudden, all of the people who'd spent hundreds of thousands, sometimes a million dollars or more to acquire St. Kitts passports, hoping to be able to visit Canada without a visitor visa, were sadly disappointed. Uh, so that's a very... Somewhat uh, volatile. <laughs> a, a volatile situation. Uh, St. Kitts is hopeful that one day they'll get that visitor visa exempt status back. But of course, it's not, theirs, it's not their decision. Right? Uh, they, don't, they don't quite have uh, the same uh, bargaining power, I guess, if you will, as, as Mexico, for instance. Aha, there we are. <laughs> and <clears throat> yes, for sure. And uh, there are other countries, however, in the world, Uh, for example, Hungary in the EU or Cyprus in the EU, Malta. And if they were to give you, through investment, citizenship in their uh, country, then you would be able to visit Canada without having a visitor visa uh, in place in your passport. And the likelihood of Canada canceling the visitor visa exempt status of any European country is, uh, from a practical point of view, virtually nil. Yeah, very low. So you would think from that point of view that those countries' passports would be much more valuable. But those countries don't sell the passport directly. Mm -hmm. You have to first go through an intervening permanent residence stage. So we have to then be careful about what we're talking about. Are we talking about citizenship through investment, like the Caribbean islands will sell you a passport directly? Or are we talking about first permanent residence through investment? 
-hmm. And then after a period of time, you might be able to get the passport. And that's a, a far, far different process. Now, I think at one time, didn't even Portugal have uh, a type of investment option for, for individuals seeking, I think, the equivalent of permanent resident status. Maybe I'm, I'm wrong, but I think they were in that game for a little bit as well. I'm not sure if they still are. Yes, they still are. Mm -hmm. Portugal and Spain, um, by the way, I, I mentioned uh, uh, Hungary, Cyprus, mm -hmm. and Malta. That's, those are not the only countries involved in, 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 in offering permanent residence or citizenship well, first per permanent residence and then citizenship in Europe, because Portugal is on that list, Spain, Latvia, I understand, although I don't know much about it. The UK, although whether or not the UK is going to stay in, in the EU is a, <laughs> yeah, that'll be interesting. Is a very interesting question right now. Um, I guess that I guess the Brexit is still somewhat up in the air, legally speaking. Wow. So yeah, Portugal has an interesting twist. On the concept, because first with Portugal, you get a suit by making an investment in property. And we can talk, by the way, about what kind of an investment will get you to your destination in in terms of uh, your permanent residence. In the in the case of Cyprus and Portugal and Spain, you have to make an investment in property. You have to buy a villa, like a piece of real estate. In other countries like Bulgaria and Hungary and Malta, you are instead purchasing government bonds. So there are different uh, shades of gray, if you like, uh, to this process. And in Portugal, they have a concept that they call the golden visa, which is a wonderful marketing term. Yes. <laughs> yes. And the golden visa, however, is not permanent residence. The golden visa is a, a two-year permit and actually it's a first the first permit is one year and then it can be extended by two years for several years until you've got five years of golden visa status during which time you have to maintain the ownership of a piece of property worth a certain amount of money then you can become a permanent resident of portugal and then you can become a citizen of portugal so that's how they've decided to handle their – so even though the EU is – it's the EU is a strange concept in itself because on the one hand, it, it wants to be one union, the European Union, but it's like the EU is made up of 27 member states, soon to be perhaps 26 if England – or if Britain leaves. That's kind of like in the Canadian context – if you had 27 Quebecs. Hmm. Yeah? <laughs> that makes sense. Now, on that topic, so describe the, the Quebec, and I know we're not diving in too deep into, into the actual programs, but like, what, what, is, what is Quebec? What type of an investor program do they have? Well, Quebec still has what the federal government invented in the first place back in the 80s, <clears throat> uh, in the mid-80s, and that is a program where you purchase a, a non-interest-bearing bond. And it's the, the amount of the bond has changed over time. It can obviously change from time to time. <clears throat> so you put up – currently, the Quebec immigration program can be described very simply. You have to have a net worth of 1.6 million Canadian dollars that you have accumulated through your own efforts, not through – 
uh, inherited money or gifted money, although why that should be is another issue. So you've got this money that you've earned through business or employment, $1.6 million worth of net worth, worth of assets, I should say. <clears throat> and you write a check to the Quebec government for $800,000. Or you can go to a financial institution like a bank who will finance that for you and you can make a private arrangement with that bank. And currently, banks in Canada are uh, funding the purchase of these $800,000 bonds at an amount around 220,000 Canadian dollars. Hmm. And then you or the bank will get the money back in five years with no interest. Quebec then takes the $800,000 that you've given them the free use of for five years, and they in turn do stuff with that money to, to uh, further provincial uh, social and political and financial goals. Hmm. And Carter, do you that, have any idea how much money funnels into the, the the province on a given year through these programs? Is that well, publicly yeah, available? I, yes, yes, it is. Uh, Seventeen hundred people come to Quebec every year for the last few years, anyway. Huh. Over time, they've got nearly a billion dollars this huh. way. But so, you know, do the math. Yes. 1,700 people, and Quebec has not failed to sell out yeah. the 1,700 quota. So they, they are, have been taking in for the past several years 1,700 times $800,000. Now they have to pay that money back five years later, but they have the free use of that money during that time, and they put it to good use. And the, so they love the program. They don't understand why the federal government got out of the program. And I guess that's we, the question, Carter. <laughs> Do you? What is the answer? Well, I have my own personal view is that the Harper government decided uh, at a certain point in time in their in their last mandate around 2011, 2012, that they wanted to be the party of the middle class. And therefore, they wanted to get out of the investor program so that no one could accuse them of favoring the rich. I think it's just as crass as that. I have no actual empirical data to back up that. <laughs> well, that's the beauty of this podcast, Carter. We can say whatever the heck we want because it's my podcast and no one's <laughs> no one's restricting or censoring anything. So opinions and, and thoughts and uh, okay. prognostication <laughs> is completely acceptable here. Well, listen, in 2012, when they killed the program, there were... At that time, there was a backlog of, some say 16,000, some, some say 22,000, I don't know the exact uh, number, of applicants who had been queued up for years, some of them at the current 800,000 uh, five-year zero-interest bond level, some at 400,000, because there was a previous uh, version of the program where the bond amount was only 400000 mm -hmm. So <clears throat> there were uh, thousands and thousands of applicants in a queue who were suddenly terminated. Their applications were terminated. Now, they did get back their application fees, but what that meant was that Canada was turning away 
billions of dollars. Well, I just did the math in, in Quebec. So on a given year, they they would take in about 1.36 billion. Now that's yeah. just in you know the the uh, the initial investment, and then they would have right. five years to work with that. And that's right. You can do quite a bit with that. <laughs> yeah. So there had to be some very powerful political reason to do that. Wow. <laughs> and my answer, my uh, my surmise is that Mr. Harper said, I don't want to be the prime minister of the rich. Huh. I want to take the center. I want to yes. be the party of the center. Mm-hmm. Huh. Do, do you <laughs> so, think there will ever be a day where the, the liberals contemplate bringing it back? Yes, but that day... <laughs> may come only well first of all it's not going to happen in 2017 yeah the the plan for 2017 is already written in stone mm-hmm. there are no, there is no plan to bring back the investor category we had a conference in toronto on the 6th and 7th of december at which a number of uh, government, government officials from all three levels of government were there and that program was devoted extremely sorry exclusively to uh, entrepreneurs and investors, and so maybe we changed some minds that day, and maybe those mind changes might have an effect in 2018. Doubtful. 2019, maybe. However, 2019, Mark, it's an election year. Yeah, good so, point. Huh. So I don't know if. We'll, so what's happened? Ironically, Canada. First of all, the first country involved in selling something uh, to investors was the island of St. Kitts in 1985, I believe. Canada started the first uh, permanent residence through investment program in the world in 1986. We were the king of this area until we until we fled the field in 2011. So many other countries said, thank you. (laughs) We'll take them. (laughs) We'll take the, especially the United States where the EB five program, which is the name of their investor program uh, has been flourishing really recently because like I said, Canada decided to abandon the entire program. Hmm. well, so, sorry, I have to I have to qualify that. Yeah, Quebec I, is part of Canada, so yes. no, we haven't we <laughs> haven't as a country totally abandoned it, but the federal government has left the playing field. Hmm. Very interesting. So, obviously, with with that disappearing, you still have high net worth individuals that that are looking at Canada as a possible place to actually immigrate and, and raise their families. So, like, what are they? What are they looking at now? So they can they have two choices. They can try to get into the Quebec program. However, the Quebec program is limited to seventeen hundred families, of which um, I don't know the exact percentage. It's around sixty forty, I believe. About sixty percent go to uh, people with a Chinese passport, who would dominate the entire program if they could, and then. Uh, about 40% are reserved for non-Chinese passport holders. So that's one still, that's one area of investment. Uh, Permanent residence through investment in Quebec is still open. And 
the only other way to come to Canada, if you're a high net worth individual, is if you're willing to actually start a business in Canada, which brings us back to the active business investment or entrepreneur, or often called business immigration programs. And those involve, because uh, the federal government is not involved in that area. So that means you have to apply through one of the provincial nomination programs. So um, which provinces right now have those types of programs? I know BC does. Um, you know, when as we work across the country, Alberta, the extent of their entrepreneur type programs is their is their farming stream, <laughs> which yeah. which is more of a self employed category. We don't really have anything like that in in the province of Alberta. I would say Alberta does not have a program yeah. if it comes right down to yeah. it. Yeah. Uh, unless, as you say, you are a farmer, self-employed yeah. farmer. Yeah, and even BC, then, it's one or two, maybe a year. I think they process, so it's not even. Yeah, yeah not even on the radar. Exactly. Uh, New Brunswick, uh, on the east coast, their website says they have a program. And I, at, on December the sixth, I listened to a speaker from New Brunswick who talked as if they had a program, but it's so minuscule. I would have to discount that program as well. Right. So we have British Columbia, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, Ontario, and Nova Scotia have programs, as well as Prince Edward Island. Newfoundland doesn't have one. There is one in Yukon. It's a very small program. Um, none of my clients in Dubai want to go to the Yukon. <laughs> That's so. so strange. I can't imagine why. <laughs> but they do have a program, and it's um, the uh, the person in charge of that program spoke at our conference on December the 6th, and there are a few people that want to mine for gold and or fly tourists in from Japan, that sort of thing. But it's a very small program. Um, the, the programs in Nova Scotia, Ontario, Manitoba, Saskatchewan, and British Columbia have one uh, common uh, feature – which is they have adopted the expression of interest mm. selection model, which is very unfortunate because the expression of interest selection model works well in the skilled worker uh, context. We have that right now with express entry, for example. The express entry skilled worker Without spending too much money, it gets a has to pay a few hundred dollars for an education assessment from one of the ECA providers, and has to pay a few hundred dollars for a language test, either IELTS or the English language test, IELTS or the French test TEF. So it's not a large investment of, of money, and then they go into a selection pool where they're competing with all the other applicants in the pool and then the country of Canada selects them out and in some cases the province a province in Canada who participates in that program can select out these these skilled workers so the so these five provinces Nova Scotia uh, Ontario Manitoba Saskatchewan and British Columbia I guess uh, about a year ago fell in love with the selection of in, the expression of interest selection model but it's a disaster in my opinion because 
it costs a lot of money to make your expression of interest if you're trying to be an active entrepreneur applicant. In Ontario, for example, they say that, or I am speaking from right now, <clears throat> they say that your minimum investment, if you're going to be starting a business in the, you intend to start a business in the uh, greater Toronto area, has to be a million Canadian dollars. <laughs> and if the investment's going to be outside, the so-called GTA, Greater Toronto Area, the minimum investment is $500,000. But those minimums mean nothing because the next guy in line could be spending $5 million. And so by competing, by having a race, by having a competition between the applicants, the minimums mean nothing really. And you could possibly spend a lot of money making exploratory business visits, preparing expensive business proposals, financial statements, and so forth, only to find that you are not going to be selected because other people have promised to do more than you are planning to do in the way of job creation. Huh. That's tremendous uncertainty within that process. So. So what motivates people to be willing to just take a shot at it? I don't know that uh, – I haven't found anyone who is motivated. Mm -hmm. After I get telling through telling people what I just told you <laughs> – They usually say, mm, I'll look to the EB-5 program. <laughs> I'd like to go to the United States instead, right. Oh. Um, and if you are, quote-unquote, fortunate enough to be selected by Ontario – then you don't get immigration. What you get is a work permit. And then you're on in on this work permit, you're in Ontario for two years on a work permit, and at month 10, you have to prove to them that you did in fact create the jobs you promised. And by month 20, you have to prove to them that you hit the monetary performance targets that you promised in your proposal. And if you don't, <laughs> then your application's canceled. So, do so, they yeah. offer any kind of grace or, or you know, justification or anything like that, or is it a pretty, a pretty harsh, you know, determination? I don't know whether they would actually uh, do anything. They started this program in January of 2016. Mm, just started. I, I certainly wouldn't advise anyone to go into the Ontario program. And if you did go into the Ontario program and didn't hit those targets, um, you could be sitting on a, you know, you, you might have promised that you were going to buy a $15 million hotel and you were going to employ 22 people, but you only employed 11 people and the hotel only cost $14 million. And two years later, you find that your program is canceled and you and your family have to leave the country. And you're what? stuck with this hotel. Mm -hmm. Hello. So, wow. so, so I don't like that concept. The, 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 so far, the one province remaining, Prince Edward Island, which is a very small province mm -hmm. and a lot of people don't want to go to a very small province, uh, it still has minimums that are actual minimums. So that program is is still viable and i suppose if somebody really wants to live in ontario and i just haven't found that person 
But if that person came to me in Dubai and said, no, I really want to live in Ontario. I'm very wealthy. I can easily uh, employ exactly the, the number of people that I'm going to be promising to employ. I can easily hit the performance targets financially. And I really want to live in Ontario. Well, then, okay, fine. Then that person can go and, and do that. Or that person can become an American through the EB-5 program. So that's our big competition. Hmm. The American EB-5 program requires currently an investment of 500,000 U.S. dollars. It is risky because you have to be very careful which which, uh, commercial enterprise you put your money into because it, it depends on the creation of a number of jobs. 10 jobs per family but if you select your and there are hundreds of projects on offer if you select your program carefully you can actually get a green card to the united states in about uh, just under two years Wow! and that offers although that has some uncertainty associated with it at least you're in north america and you have more control over the process, if you can put it, if I can put it that way, than you would if you were going to the province of Ontario. Hmm. Okay, so from the standpoint of, of practitioners who are wading into this area, if someone came to you, a, a high net worth individual, and said, "Look, I'm looking at, at going to Canada. What options are available? Um, you know, what if you were to rank at least maybe the top." couple options how would you rank them and maybe that's a little bit difficult because there's a lot of different factors but you know yeah so so here's what i would tell in a a nutshell i would say to somebody look by the way the quebec program is oversubscribed or fully subscribed at the moment so i would say look in the spring of 2017 we expect that quebec will once again open up its program However, we have to look at how you acquired your wealth and how old you are, because Quebec is unbelievably um, uh, burdensome. With Quebec, you have to prove to them how you earned every single dollar that you've ever earned since age 18. And for people that have had multiple business careers and who are, you know, business owners with lots of investments, one of my colleagues told me about a case where in order to prove all the financial uh, transactions of this particular client, the application consisted of six legal file boxes full of documents. Yeah, like they needed, you know, those trucks, those hand trolley (laughs) things? Yeah. They need two of them to uh, put the application. It must have cost hundreds of dollars to FedEx the application. So, and, and I'd like to talk about that later. Why on earth Quebec would make someone produce all that paper when they don't actually have to do anything when they get to Quebec? They just have to write a check. So why are they anyway? So I, I will talk to my client about that. I will say, look. If you are a fairly young person, you know, you're 32 and you have your $1.8 million net worth earned because you are a bank vice president and get a great salary for the last, you know, five years, good. You can qualify for Quebec fairly easily. But if you're 
49 or 59 years of age and you're a businessman and you have to put together six filing boxes full of financial records dating back to your 18th birthday, you might not want to do that. So then I would say, now, do you want to go to the United States or do you want to go to Canada? Here are the options. Uh, we've talked about Ontario, the EB-5 program. Would you like to go to the United States? And, of course, many of my clients in the UAE are Muslim and they don't really want to go to the mm -hmm. United States right yeah. now. And so then I talk about the island of Prince Edward Island, which uh, does not – in, in, so far, is not involved in an expression of interest selection model. And then we turn to, you know, uh, well, by the way, what are you really looking for? Are you looking for safety for your, for your children and your family down the road without much uh, work involved? Well, why not try Hungary? Why not try Portugal? Hmm. So, and, and there are other programs which I haven't got into because yeah. I'm, I just don't know about every program in of the world. Of course, in the world, yeah. But there's Australia, there's Singapore, there's Hong Kong, wow. there's Malaysia. There are other options. And unfortunately, my government, Canada yeah, federal government. is not one of them. That is not one of them. <laughs> ah. Well, it's going to be very interesting to see how things unfold over the coming years to see if it's a, a program that there might be enough um, of a political reason to, to bring bring it back well you know everyone talks about uh, when we when you talk about the the general concept of investor immigration in Canada a lot of people say things like well we shouldn't be selling our passport mm -hmm. first of all we've never sold the passport and we never will in my opinion sell the passport like the Caribbean islands but we have been and we still are through the province of Quebec, selling permanent residents. And I personally, of course, I'm biased. I make a living by doing this. Right. I, I, don't, I don't see the problem yes. with that. Some people, they don't like the idea of rich people just writing a check and getting the immigrant visa. But to those people, I say, yes, well, you gave an immigrant visa to someone who said, I have a master's degree in computer science and I speak English and I'm 28 years old and I've worked as a supervisor in a logistics company for three years. So why did that guy get the visa? What was so great about that guy? Whereas somebody who's willing to write a check for $800,000 to the province of Quebec, he shouldn't get the visa? Why? Why would that be? So there are some people that think for some reason that a little bit of skilled work experience, three years worth, by the way, that's all it takes, yeah. and a master's degree and facility in English or French, that's fine. Come to Canada. We have no idea whether that person is going to be a productive person or not. But that's enough, apparently, to convince some people that, yeah, well, let, let's those, let those people come to Canada. Huh. So, and so this in, the, these investments, so let's talk a little bit about that because that's really, you know, th this is a response to people who are, are I guess, anti-investor programs. What is the money typically used for? So when, when the government like Quebec holds it for five years, what type of projects, what type of things do they, you know, where does the money go? 
I'm not an expert on that exact area, but to my knowledge, what Quebec does is they give they they solicit um, uh, requests from small and medium business enterprises for money for grant money. Hmm. So a company in Quebec says. Uh, to the premier of Quebec or the government of Quebec, I'd like to open a second shift or I'd like to, uh, in, you know, increase my research and development department. And I'd like $75,000 to do that. And if it's approved, the premier, of, and this is a great political uh, tool, obviously. So the premier of Quebec then writes a check for $75,000 or $128,000 to XYZ University, sorry, uh, enterprise somewhere in Quebec and says, here you are. Uh, this is money provided through the Quebec Investor Program. Mm -hmm. Oh, I think that's a win-win. <laughs> You know, you know, that's interesting, Carter, because when you describe that to me, the first thing that comes to my mind is bingo. And so yeah. <laughs> and so I've got kids that are in sports, right? And yeah. so all the time you get these this funding for athletic programs, different things that comes from, you know, Lotteries Alberta or something like that. And I'm thinking, okay, so you're getting this cash from the people who really have the least amount of cash, but you have this you know, this, this repulsion to allowing these rich, you know, foreign nationals, um, you know, give us their money, uh, in exchange for permanent resident status in Canada, you know, but, but you're happy, you know, I, I, you're okay to take it from the poor, but <laughs> not from the rich, from your exactly. own countrymen. It's just, yeah, that's, that's interesting. That's the first thing that popped to my mind. Yeah. Exactly. And from a political, from a politician's point of view, why wouldn't every politician in the country jump on this concept and say, yeah, that's great. I can give free money. All I have to do is support rich people coming into Canada. So some, somehow that hasn't worked except in Quebec. So mm -hmm. God bless Quebec, right? <laughs> and you think about uh, it too, Carter. If you have, you know, Quebec's taking in 1,700, right? How many total permanent residents are, are, are going to Quebec every year? And so it's not like the investors are, are dominating the percentage of, of immigrants that are coming through, you know, with our no. levels planning at all. This is a relatively small number of individuals. And, and by the way, only about 20% of those 1,700 actually stay in Quebec. Mm -hmm. The rest of them go to other parts of Canada because the federal government vacated the field. Mm -hmm. So most of them end up in Vancouver or Toronto, and that just fuels the oh, they're, they're these investors from Quebec. They're <laughs> causing the house prices in Calgary to you know in Vancouver to go so through the. So they roof. were the ones. <laughs> Yeah, so all of a sudden, these people are villains, right? <laughs> In fact, what they're doing is, you see, and a lot of people say this, well, all they're doing is lending $800,000 to Quebec for five years <clears throat> at zero interest. Big deal. That's not so much money. Oh my but goodness. that's not the point. What yeah. they do is they come, those 1,700 families, I guarantee you, every one of them is buying a house mm -hmm. or an apartment somewhere in Canada that probably costs a million dollars or more. Yep. And uh, that's anecdotal. Yep, of course. But you know they're not buying 
$222,000 yep. houses. You know that. So, and, and, and what are they filling those houses with? They're filling those houses with expensive dishwashers and uh, microwaves and uh, kitchen aids and and butlers and, and butlers <laughs> and, and they and they buy draperies and they they have landscaping. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and they and they and they people say, oh well, they're draining the healthcare system. No, they're not. They're not in the healthcare system. They've all just been screened by a medical system, which proves that they're all apparently healthy for at least the next 10 years. Yeah. So they're not a healthcare drain and they're not a drain really on our schooling because, uh, yeah, okay, fine. The university students will be able to get university, uh, uh education at uh, the same rates as everybody else. But don't forget the high school and, and the high schools, uh, I suppose would be the, the main focus. They're going to private schools. Yeah. So, these rich families, you might resent them because they're rich and you're not. Okay, yeah. fine. But they're not hurting anybody. They're actually contributing to our country, not to New York or Florida. Gotcha. Now, here's where I need your help. Okay, so so obviously I, I, I do none of this. And at the end of our podcast, we're going to get your contact information. So these high net worth individuals will be calling you. <laughs> oh yeah. Um, but, but here's, here's something I need your help with. So here, so when I talk to people about this, the detractors, what they typically say is, well, these people, and I've heard this, I don't know if it was, you know, Kenny or who it was. These individuals are coming over here. You know, they have no intention of ever immigrating. Uh, at least the, the, the father will say, or the principal earner, they're happy to stay in their own country. They're, they're just getting their permanent residence, they're landing, and then they go home, and then maybe mom and the kids stick around so that they can get school, and they may or not even establish themselves. They may, you know, get Canadian education and then and then head back home where the opportunities are maybe greater. So how how do you recommend and, how do you, and, how do you and, answer that? And and husband and dad isn't paying any income tax. Oh yes, yeah, sorry, yes, yes. They're That's just what they all they're say, just right? they're just draining. There's no. No investment. They didn't bring any of their money over. They've kept it all in the home country. So, right. so what do you say to people like that? When because this is the argument you hear all the time, all the time. Right. Well, first of all, what I say is I don't want Dad to come here. Dad doesn't know how to make any money here. Dad knows how to make money wherever he's from, and he probably doesn't speak English very well in the first place. If they're coming from China, yes, right. So I hope dad stays away. I don't care if he pays a, a dime in income tax. What I hope is that the rest of the family fall in love with Canada so much and sink roots so deep that dad keeps sending them checks mm -hmm. every month to continue paying the mortgage and the rent and buying the draperies and the landscaping. Mm -hmm. That's what we're trying to do. We want the and, and and quite frankly, the wife. Uh, yeah, typically this is a very male chauvinistic kind of, of scenario, right? Yeah, yeah, it is. In, in most of the world, still today, the head of the family is typically male, right? And so it's certainly in the Middle East and in in, in Asia. So dad's making all the money, and the wife may be a business partner. Often, actually, in Dubai, quite frankly, yes. the mm -hmm. wife is a business mm -hmm. partner. But the wife is also 
filling the traditional female role of, you know, mother and nurturer. So they come to uh, Calgary or, uh, you know, Vancouver or Toronto and get into school and so forth. Yes, it's true. I suppose some of these families hate Canada, or really don't like it. All they wanted is the passport, and they just stay 1,095 days, and then they leave. But that's not my experience. Yeah. My experience is the wife and children get rooted into Canada. And if dad came over, they would have to sell the house because dad they can't afford the mortgage anymore. Yeah. Because dad isn't capable of making the millions he's making in China if he's in Canada. What's he going to do in Canada? Yep. So to that, to those people who say that, I say, what planet are you on? <laughs> you know, the real world is we want dad to stay where he is. <laughs> God bless him. One day, I hope before he dies, he can come over here and join the children. But what we really want is his money. Yeah. And if what we really want is his money, we want him to stay away. <laughs> you know, that's really interesting because I, when I first started, when I first went out on my own, I left Gowlings and joined a smaller regional firm down here in Lethbridge and then decided to just focus exclusively on immigration. Well, the very first summer, I hired a summer student and um, he had come over through the Quebec immigrant investor category from South Korea. His father had stayed back and uh, and he was definitely integrated because he went through law school. He was going through law school and now he's a lawyer practicing in Calgary. So so there you go. There's my, my one direct... Uh, example of, uh, of of how the program works. And guess what? He he became rooted in Canada, right? Yes. And he's productive all by himself. You bet. He's now, got his own little firm that employs Canadians. That's right. And guess what? When dad dies, where's the money going? <laughs> yeah, good point. Brilliant point, right. actually, Carter. That's a brilliant okay. point. <laughs> okay. You're familiar, I'm sure, with the... Uh, children's story the pied piper yes we we want the children that's what we want that's 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 wonderful that's great well carter i really really appreciate the time that you took to to just educate everybody on this it's often a very misunderstood program and there it's so polarizing and and the propaganda that you know, has been put out there, uh, you know, uh, especially in the, with, with the government when they were in the, the throes of closing it. Um, you know, sometimes it isn't always an accurate reflection of, of the realities. And it's nice to have someone on the other side who, who can give some real life um, background and, and experience into how this program works at the ground level. And, uh, you know, we'll, we'll cross our fingers that, that things will improve here and there'll be an opportunity to to see a new federal program. But in the interim, you've given us definitely uh, a bunch of different op- options, both in Canada and outside, and something to think about when we've got these high net worth clients that are coming to, to talk to us. Now, yeah. is there anything else that we haven't covered to this point that you, you'd like to share with our listeners about this topic? Well, in terms of Canada, I think we've more or less exhausted what we can say about Canada's lack of yeah, initiative in this short area. Short conversation. Yeah, and uh, you know, we've basically given up, and the Americans have filled the vacuum, and other countries as well. Um, so, uh, 
we we're not going to be able to turn. You know the, that old expression about so hard to turn an oil tanker around <laughs> takes like three days to turn the oil. In this case, it's going to take three years, I think, to turn the oil tanker around. Um, so one day, maybe we'll get back into it. We were the world leader in investor immigration at one point. Um, it was ours, and we gave it away. Um, if if you if as a practitioner, if if a high net worth individual were to come to you, I'd have to say the chances of that person ending up in Canada these days are pretty slim. That's kind of sad. So what I end up doing is selling people European passport and residence programs. Mm -hmm. It's it's sad. It's really sad. Yeah. So that's a terrible note to end on, Mark. I'm so <laughs> <laughs> well, do you know what, Carter? The the beauty of this podcast is we get to speak about the realities without sugarcoating. Uh, yeah. You know, right from the experience that our clients go through all the way to, you know, to seeing uh, the, the the immigration programs at a 10,000 foot level. And that's a reality right now. It's, yeah. you know, when people say immigrant investor, you know, Canada is not even on the radar. And then, you know, no. we didn't really talk too much about the, the startup visas and those kinds of things. But the, the reality is the, the feeble attempts that the government has, has made to, uh, to offer these little token uh, more entrepreneurial programs really have not uh, well, resulted okay, in let, anything. Sorry. So let me end on this note. Yes. The, the previous government uh, completely um, screwed up this area. The startup visa was invented by Jason Kenney and was designed to get people who wouldn't be able somehow to, uh, to, he wanted dot com or Silicon Valley entrepreneurs who were studying in the United States and couldn't get green cards to be able to come up to Canada. And he set a limit, I think, of 750. Yeah. And, and we got maybe seven. I don't know how many we got. <laughs> So that was like so ill-conceived, and nobody in the department apparently said, Mr. Kenny, Ms. Minister, dear Minister, that's ridiculous. That's nobody said that to him. idea. <laughs> nobody said that to him, so that yeah. was a failure. And then we had the program where – I'm not even going to waste time on that program. <laughs> so we had another program which died. Yeah. So, so – there is some light at the end of the tunnel, but the problem is the current government is doing wonderful things in the immigration space. They've, we're the leader of the world in Syrian refugee you know, acceptance on a per capita basis. We're the absolute leader of the world. And they've reduced sponsorship processing times for spouses to practically months when they used to be years. Yes. And they, they're not doing. They haven't done the best job they possibly could on on parents and grandparents, but they've taken positive steps. Right. And they're even, they've even changed skilled workers, very positively. Yes. So, so if I'm the current immigration minister of Canada, I'm not feeling bad about my. No. You know, I'm expecting an A plus on my performance rating. So, yes, I haven't done anything in the immigration investment area, but so what? So that's that's the problem that we have, in effect. The government has done such a good job, in my opinion, in all the other areas or in many of the other areas of the immigration policy file that it's going to be a while before 
the investor uh, gets enough uh, – what's the word? Re- above the radar. It's, yes. We're, it's so below the radar right yeah. now. John McCallum, I think, is a great minister. He doesn't really need investors at the moment right. from, a, from a political point of view. Yeah. Huh. I think we need to get him to <laughs> come on the, the podcast it, here yes, and, and share yes. some insight. <laughs> yes. All we need is like 2000 a year. That's all we want. <laughs> that's it. Just a little bit. Well, that's wonderful. Well, thank okay, you. Mark. Thank you so much, Carter. Now, how can people find you? What's the best way for them to get in contact with you? I'm an email guy. Okay. And so... Um, my name is Carter Hoppe, C-A-R-T-E-R-H-O-P-P-E, all one word, no dots, at carterhoppe.com. Perfect. That makes it easy. So yep. carterhoppe at carterhoppe.com. Yeah. Excellent. Well, this has been great. Um, yeah, once again, I, I want to thank you for joining us, and this has been a lot of fun. And I think people who uh, yeah. traditionally um, think of uh, investor programs, they think, oh, that's going to be dry. But you've breathed life into it. (laughs) And so it's been something I'm sure it's going to be very, very well received by the listeners. And uh, yeah, I just thanks so much for taking the time. Thank you, Mark. All right. You take care. Same here. Bye-bye. Well, that was a lot of fun. You can just see how passionate Carter is about this topic. And um, the perspective that he brings is, is amazing. And there's a lot of people. It's quite a polarizing topic this immigrant investor world. There are some that uh, really don't like it. And, you know, the the perspective that Carter brings and how he provides um, just a really good alternative, um, you know, argument to the importance of immigrant investor programs and the benefits that can flow to Canada. So thank you, Carter. Um, You really brought it to that podcast. And uh, I hope that in the future I can get Carter back as well, uh, as well as many of the guests that I've had on the podcast. I want to thank you for listening. This one has lasted a little bit longer than than I intended. Um, Once again, we've got our new immigration minister. Um, It'll be curious to see how things go with him. Thank you so much. uh, You know, our, our previous minister McCallum wish you all the best in your new portfolio. And, uh, I just want to sign off this podcast expressing appreciation to all of you listeners. Once again, send me a note if you have topics that you think we should cover, any other ideas. I love the engagement. I hope uh, this. Um, I hope that this podcast was uh, of benefit to, uh, to all the listeners out there. Um, please go to iTunes and leave a comment. Those comments allow it to... Arise, you know, to rise in the rankings and, and just get larger exposure. We're consistently getting over 3,000 downloads a month, and I would love to see that go to five or even 10,000 for that matter. At any rate, thanks uh, for your participation. Uh, as a listener to this podcast and your engagement with me, if you do have um, any suggestions, like I said, please leave them with me. All right, enough of me blithering on like I always do. I want to wish you all the best as you navigate this crazy world of Canadian immigration law, policy, and practice. 
Thank you for listening to the Canadian Immigration Podcast, your trusted source for information on Canadian law, policy, and practice. If you would like to contribute a question for future podcasts or wish to set up a legal consultation with Mark, please visit www.ht-llp.com. Canadian Immigration Podcast.